if you were, let's see, if you were in the ancient world, and if you were wanting to write a letter to someone, the beginning of that letter would follow a set sort of pattern or, or a set formula. Now, let me, let me give you an, uh, uh, an example, okay? Let's take King Nebuchadnezzar. You know King Nebuchadnezzar, the, 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 you know, the big king from the book of Daniel? Now, he once wrote a letter to all the people of the earth. Now, what you're thinking, you're thinking, okay, that's going to cost an awful lot in, lot in postage. And it may have done, but he did it. And he begins the letter like this. Okay, this is how King Nebuchadnezzar begins his letter. Are you ready for it? King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in the earth, peace be multiplied to you. Okay, now that's the beginning. Now, do you see the formula? Are you able to pick out the sort of three expected elements of a beginning to a letter in the ancient world. Do you see the three things? You've got the sender, King Nebuchadnezzar. Then there had to be the recipient to all peoples. And then did you see the third thing? There had to be as well a greeting. He says, what is it? Peace be multiplied to you. So you're with me so far? There's a formula that's expected in a letter in the ancient world, formula, and it's got three parts to it. Now, here's the danger. What we must not do this evening, as we turn to the beginning of the letter to Colossians, is think, okay, that's just what Paul's doing here. We cannot think, and I urge you not to think, that Paul is just beginning his letter in a casual sort of throwaway. Okay, I'll tell you what, I'll write into the letter to the Colossians, I'll tick the three expected boxes, send the recipient, greeting. I'll do. Don't think like that. Because that is not what Paul is doing here. And I urge you to hear this, because if you get this next bit, follow me through the sermon. If you don't, you won't. What Paul is doing. Paul's been very, very clever here at the beginning of this letter. What Paul is doing is he takes that normal expected formula that begins a letter and he adjusts it. He takes the formula that everyone's expecting to read and he adds to it. He adds to each of the three expected elements and he adds detail to it to make specific points. Specific points for his readership, specific points for the Colossians. And he is making specific points about the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is what we're going to look at tonight. So, I would ask you, make sure that you have uh, Colossians 1, verses 1 and 2 in front of you. Because we're, we're going to need to look at the specific words and detail that we've got in front of us here Let's think about it. I've said that there's three expected elements, three parts normally to a sort of introduction in the ancient world. That's what we're going to do. That's going to, that's going to be our plan. So let's think about the first part of it. Do you remember what the first thing was? It was a sender. So let's think about the authorship of this letter. The authorship of Colossians. Okay, now... You do not need to look very far in Colossians to find out who has written this epistle. I mean, have a look. It's the first word in your Bible. It's the first word in the Greek. It's Paulus. Okay, this letter is written by Paul. Now, 
Is this the same Paul as, you know, converted in the Damascus Road? Same Paul who's been called to be a witness to Christ amongst the Gentile world. Now, what we need to know is that Paul's writing this in about AD 60, or thereabout, and he's writing it from Rome. So what, what we need to know is that he is writing this from a jail cell in Rome. And that's going to be important as we go through this letter. What else should we know? Well, we should also know who else is mentioned in this intro. Do you see that? We've got Paul, but we've also got mention of Timothy. Now, okay, why is Timothy mentioned? What's, what's Timothy's name doing there? Well, let's make sure we don't get this wrong. This is not a sort of Lennon-McCartney type stuff. You know, it's not that, that, that Timothy is Paul's co-author. See, when we read through this over the next few weeks and, and, and months, maybe, what we're going to see is Paul write in the first person. You know, he writes this letter. I, Paul. And Timothy's just really mentioned here because he's, he's Paul's main man. You know, he's Paul's right-hand man. He is uh, Paul's go-to man. He's a guy who's sharing in Paul's ministry with him. So it's written, you know, you've got from Paul and Timothy. And we could just draw a line under it, can we? You know, remember what we said, you know, that you would expect detail about the sender. Well, there you go. That's it. You've got it. Paul could just end it there. Who's the letter from? It's from Paul and it's from Timothy. Do you remember what the point of the sermon is? Remember that Paul is adding detail about each of these three things to make points about Christ. So here's a question. What detail does he add? He doesn't just say it's from Paul. What does he say? Have a look. He writes, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now, come on. Why is he saying that? Why is he, why is he underlining the fact that, that he's an apostle? Is it? Now, think big picture, New Testament. Is it, as it is in Galatians, and as it is in Second Corinthians, is it because his status as an apostle is being called into question by the church that he's writing to? Is that what it is? Is that why he's underlining his apostle? No, it's not. It's for another reason that takes us to the very heart and the purpose of this letter. Now, follow me in this. This week, just a few days ago, I, I met up with someone for a cup of coffee. And um, in some ways, it was quite a difficult meeting because this guy was telling me that he has recently left his church that's, that's a, a hard thing for anyone to do, I think. But this guy was saying he had to do it because false teaching had arisen in, in this church. Now, this was, this was false teaching that claimed to be the gospel, you know. And it was, it was false teaching that used sort of gospel terminology but it was false, you know, he was saying, look, it was, it was, it was false teaching that did not preach Christ and, and him crucified. Well, you see that there? That is what we have to keep in mind when, when we are thinking about this letter to the Colossians. 
Because the primary purpose that Paul is writing to these church about is because the same thing. The threat of false teaching was hanging over these people. What had happened was that some false teachers had, had sort of got into the church in Colossae and they were trying to encourage them to sort of pursue unbiblical practices. And it was threatening the witness to the gospel itself. So, what does Paul do? Yeah, you can say he writes his letter. Yeah, but how does he begin the letter? By underlining and reminding them that he is an apostle. Do you see what he's doing? He's saying, Colossae, this letter, what falls, it's not just random thoughts by some dude that you've never met and don't know. He's saying, no, this is an apostle writing this. This is official. You see this warning about false teaching. This comes from a messenger of Jesus Christ himself. Do you see the sender? It's not just Paul. It is the apostle Paul. Now, what do we need to be thinking about? I mean, is, is there anything for us as a congregation here that we can learn, even just about the, the sender of what we're seeing about the authorship here? Let me suggest that there is. Can I suggest there is a warning for us as a group of Christians, a warning about vigilance? Vigilance. Because think about, in essence, what the problem in Colossae was. See the standards and the practices of society? They'd come in. They'd come in here. You know, they'd come into the life and to the work and the practice and the worship of the church. You hear that? Do you not think, ah, surely we then have to be very, very wary that that does not happen here in London City Presbyterian Church? And I would say to you, absolutely we have to watch that. We've got to be very careful that this desire of our hearts to see people who are lost and dying and hellbound, this desire to see them come in here and be part of the church and be saved, we've got to be careful that that desire does not lead to us embracing worldly values in message, in practice, and in worship. There is a warning here about vigilance. But I tell you this, something else, because there is an example in the authorship too, is there not? Like, I don't know what you think about the Apostle Paul. Some people don't like Paul. I was talking to someone this morning, and they said that they were reading it. They thought Paul was a bigot. Paul was a bigot. I love Paul. I love Paul. You have to admire Paul, do you not? Because here is a man who is not just on the lookout for threats to the gospel. He's a guy who actually does something about it, doesn't he? And I would say to, to any guys who are in prospective leadership of a church, as I would say to all Christians here, we're supposed to love the gospel. We are supposed to see that it's worth living for. It is worth dying for. But surely we see here Above all, even from the fact that the, the guy's writing his letter from jail, surely we see that the gospel is worth defending. And it is worth defending at all costs. We've got to be vigilant. Yeah, of course we've got to be vigilant. But sometimes we've got to act to preserve gospel 
purity. So the sender of the letter. Secondly, let's think about the recipients of this letter. Who's it to? Now, let's say uh, you send an email to the London City Presbyterian Church website. Because of Bob's wizardry, uh, that email will ping all over the place and it will end up landing in my email inbox. Okay? And because of that, I get uh, lots of emails, but I get, and I get lots, I get dressed differently in these emails, let's say. You know, if I get an email from a friend, it'll be, hi, Andy, at best, it'll say that. Uh, If I get one of these emails through, it'll say, dear sir, or dear minister, or dear, do you know my my personal favorite is, I, I got an email, two emails, and they said, Dear, venerable, honoured, reverend. Oh, yeah. But I only get that if it's a very, very dodgy Nigerian guy who is wanting me to deposit money into the Presbyterian Church of Nigeria. So I don't take that too seriously. Well, we've seen the sender, the authorship, but just as we do there, you know, just as we do in an email, the second expected element of a letter in the ancient world is the recipient. You know, it's got to mention who it's being sent to. And look, just look, verse 2. You've got it as clear as day. Who's the letter written to? It is written to the people at Colossae. This is a letter written to the church in Colossae. Now, what do we need to know about that place? Well, it's small. Colossae was a small place. It was on the Lycus River in what was the Roman province of Asia. Now, see this church that we're going to be dealing with? It was set up on Paul's third missionary journey when he spent three years in Ephesus. You say, okay, so what? It was probably important for us to note that Paul didn't set it up that it was a local person that set this up. What happened? You've heard of Epaphras. You've heard that name, Epaphras. Well, Epaphras was a local guy. He was a guy from Colossae. And what it looks like happened is that he heard, okay, Paul's in Ephesus and he's preaching the gospel. I'll go and hear what this is all about. So Epaphras packs up his stuff, travels a hundred miles, hears the gospel, is saved. What does he want to do? He wants the people close to him to hear the gospel. He travels back to Colossae. It's Epaphras that sets up the church. Now, again, remember, we could draw a line under it. Remember, all we need to know in the ancient world is who the recipients are. We're, we're told that it's a letter to the Colossians. Paul could have just left it there. But again, do you remember the point of the service? The point of the sermon, Paul is adding information to glorify God. What does he add here? What does he say about the people of Colossae? Do you see it? Now, if you've got an NIV, you're going to have a problem. If you've got the King James Bible, you're not going to have a problem. Now, the NIV here, you've got to be careful. Look in verse 2. 
It suggests that there's a word here that is an adjective, but it isn't. See, look, it's the word holy. Look at the church Bible. It looks like the NIV saying, basically describing brothers, saying holy brothers. Well, that is not what, what Paul's saying. It's actually a noun, and Paul is calling, do you see it? Paul's calling the Colossians holy ones, or what's the King James got? Saints. Paul's calling the Colossians, he's calling them saints. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that Paul is writing to a group of dead special people that a pope is blessed somewhere? Is that what he's doing? No. Forget that. It's this idea that Paul is writing to people, a group of people, who have been set apart. Now, let me give you an illustration of what I'm talking about here. And I urge you to think about this. In the Old Testament temple, imagine or think back to what you know about how God was worshipped in the temple. Now, they, would, they would use vessels in the temple. Cups, let's say, right? To worship God. Now, those cups were called holy because they were kept aside just to be used in temple worship and nothing else. Basically, you could not take that cup home and sort of drink your ribena from it or something like that. Okay? It had to be used exclusively in the worship of God. Now, that is where we're getting this idea of holy, set apart, special from. Wait a minute. Do you see what Paul is saying about this Colossian people then? He's saying that those people in Colossae are chosen by God. He's saying that those people, that church, are, are set aside. That they are set apart for worshipping God, for, for, for praising Him. They're holy. They are saints. Now this is what I want to ask you, if you're a Christian, tonight. Sometimes... Our sinfulness can, can get us so down and so despondent, especially when we think of coming into this to worship God. Our sin can haunt us. I want to ask you, what, is this what Paul's saying about Colossians? Is this how you view yourself? Do you see tonight that in the sight of God, because of Jesus Christ, you are a saint. In the eyes of God, you are a saint because of Jesus Christ. Is that incredible? That he has looked at you and he has chosen you and he has taken you and he has set you aside for himself to live a life that is totally dedicated to him. A life that is separate and, and absolutely dedicated to his glory. Do you see yourself like that? It's wonderful, isn't it? That you, just like these Colossians, in Jesus Christ, you are a saint. But there's a second description here as well. Do you see this? Paul also calls these Colossians, he calls them saints, but he also calls them faithful brothers. So we've got to try and work out what that means. He's calling you a brother. Calling a Colossian a brother. Now, what does it mean? Well, think about, it, think about it like this, if you would. With the term saints, 
Paul is speaking about the Colossians' relationship with God and how they stand before God. They're a saint in God's sight. See, with that term brother, they're talking, Paul is talking about how the Colossians stand in relation to each other. In relationship to God, they are holy, they are saints. In relationship to each other, they are brothers and they are family. And they are to be walking together in step with the Spirit. Now, I've got a brother uh, in Aberdeen. And uh, we've been talking quite a bit recently, laughing together on the phone about uh, how much we are turning into my dad. You know, it's going to happen. You know, it's inevitable, I guess, that that we're sort of laughing with each other about the fact that, you know, we are now using expressions in speech that my dad used to use. Out of nowhere, we're beginning to talk like my dad. And we are really developing all these sort of characteristics. It's, it's depressing. It's, it's inevitable, I suppose, but it's depressing. Now, here's the thing I want, I want you to think about. Is that who we are in this congregation? Really, though, are we embracing the fact that we are supposed to be brothers and sisters? Or we are brothers and sisters in Christ? Like, is that actually, I know we, we see it and we use that term, brothers and sisters, but is that actually impacting on how we pray at home for each other? Is that impacting how we speak about each other? In fact, are we doing as a congregation what myself and my brother do? Are we noticing? And are we maybe even encouraging each other in how we are becoming more like our Heavenly Father? Do you see this? God is not, Paul is not just writing a throwaway comment to the recipients or about the recipients. Paul's encouraging these people. He's saying, you, you are precious to God as saints. And you are united to each other as brothers and sisters. So we've seen the sender and we've seen the recipients. We're just going to close with a word about... Do you remember the third thing? Remember it? It was greetings. Well, years ago, I used to work in Edinburgh with a German girl. And this German girl used to laugh at Scottish people. Uh, She used to laugh at the fact that we tend to say hi by saying, how's it going? Or, how are you doing, pal? And she used to think this was the most hilariously insincere thing out there. Because, of course, when we say, how's it going? We are not really asking a person can you give me an update on your your well-being just now? We are actually just saying, how's it going? We're saying hi. Well, that there is actually the biggest difference between an introduction of a letter in the ancient world and what Paul's writing here. Because remember Nebuchadnezzar's edict. Think about his greeting. He says, at the end of his introduction, he says, peace be multiplied to you. But I mean, come on, how insincere is that? 
You know, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't mean those words. Peace be multiplied to you all nations. He couldn't care less. And it's just sort of throwaway words from Nebuchadnezzar, whereas what you have got in front of you from Paul is as heartfelt as it is meaningful. Do you see the greeting? There's two elements to it that Paul is Paul genuinely wants these Colossians not just to experience what he says in this greeting, but he wants them to understand it as well. Do you see it? The first idea is this idea of grace. Do you see it? Now, here's the thing. We hear the word grace in church all the time. I I don't know how many times I've used the word grace today. It's a lot. And we hear it used a lot. Could we define grace? I mean, okay, you know when we're kids, I remember as, as a little boy, my youth club leader took me aside and said, you know, you're gonna get, you're gonna get sweets if you can remember this acronym. You know what it is, don't you? Grace. G-R-A-C-E. Everyone knows this. God's riches. Yeah, that's grace. At Christ's expense. That's okay, isn't it? I mean, it's quite memorable. It's okay if you're a kid. But it's not enough. Friends, what is grace? Grace is that central theological concept at the heart of the New Testament. Grace is the central theological concept at the complete antithesis to all other religions. Grace is God's goodness, his favor, his love, his kindness poured out on us, completely undeserving. Do you want to know what grace is? Do you, do you really want to experience grace to know more about it? Then you ponder anew this evening. You think about the fact that salvation for your sin, your wickedness, your evilness, salvation from that is available through God's Son dying on the cross. That's grace. That's undeserved favor. And then Paul ends his greeting with this other word. This word, peace. Now, he's not just talking, and we use peace a lot. We hear it in the news. But Paul's not just talking about an absence of war here. It's greater than that. What Paul wants the Colossians to to understand more often experience is really a a wider thing, an all-encompassing well-being. This peace that he wants for the church It's not just peace with with each other. This is peace eternal. This is peace through salvation in Christ. I'm going to ask you this. As a congregation, the next few weeks, we are going to look at the letter to the Colossians in detail. Are you ready to hear from God about those Two concepts there. Are you? And that's what Paul was hoping. He's writing this letter from jail. He's writing about false teaching. And he's just hoping that that church will read this, study it, and learn more about grace, and learn more about peace. Do you want to do that? Are you ready for that? And I say to you, if you are really struggling spiritually, if things are dry in your relationship with God, Come on, there is no better time to come back to God than when your family come together to study 
a new letter. So now's the time to turn over a new spiritual leaf, to go home at night, and I mean it, go home and pray over Colossians. Read it. It's glorious. Come back to God. And then I'll end with this obvious question. Do you have peace with God? Do you? I mean, is there spiritual satisfaction? Is there peace in your existence, in your relationship with Almighty God? If not, I hope you see that it comes through that first thing. It comes through grace in Jesus Christ. If you bow to him tonight, there's peace, inexpressible peace. And if you have that, you know, if you are a Christian tonight in here, do you see that you you can rejoice tonight? You can go home this evening safe in the knowledge that forevermore in the sight of God, you are a saint. You are holy. You have been set apart and chosen 